Drama on One. Sundays at 8 pm. RTA.ie forward slash Drama on One. Drama on One. Next on Drama on One In the Wings. Tonight, actors Bosco Hogan, Colin Campbell, Kate Gilmore, and Aina Grogan talk to Kevin Reynolds about recording Bloomsday by Nick Midgley. My name is Bosco Hogan. I play Old Stanny in Bloomsday by Nick Midgley. My name is Kate Gilmore. I play Nora in Bloomsday by Nick Midgley. My name is Aina Grogan. I'm playing Jim, a.k.a. James Joyce. My name is Colin Campbell. I play Stanislaus Joyce, brother of James Joyce. The story is, is, the, is the, the relationship between Stanny and his brother, the famous Mr Joyce, whom we all know and love. And I have to say that it's revealed to me stuff that I didn't know at all about their relationship. I thought I knew quite a bit about James Joyce, but I had no idea of that particular relationship in in its great depth and how Stanley influenced him in so many ways. Nora is James Joyce's wife, his muse, his lifelong love. He's a really, really, really interesting bloke. (laughs) Yeah, really, really interesting guy. I had no idea um, how insecure he was. Going off how we're portraying him in the play, he was um, less talented than his brother. He's a school teacher who joined up with him in Trieste. I suppose he was James Joyce's closest member of his family. I think we all know the general gist of James Joyce's life and Nora Barnacle's life together. You know, you'd have to be living under a rock not to know some of it. But I did some more research just for the play and, you know, where she was from, what her parents did. And this really interesting fact came up about her that two of her loves, when she was very, very young, died. Both died really tragically and very suddenly. So the locals would call her the man killer. So I thought that was a really interesting fact about her. Um, I also watched Fanula Flanagan's film, Joyce's Women, which is fantastic. That gives a real insight into Nora and James's life together and their time in Trieste with his brother Stanislaus. Uh, Stanislaus <laughs> seems to be a, a bit more of a straight-laced character than James, as Nick's portrayed him. He's a yeah, he's a school teacher, and uh, he'd remind me of a few school teachers I remember. Yeah, straight down the middle, probably a bit more priggish, a bit more um, tight with money, I would say. I suppose he's a bit younger than James as well uh, when we meet him and he's really still going through adolescence to some point and he's trying to figure out who he is and that must be quite hard to do when your brother is James Joyce. I had read bits of the Ulysses before and had to study other bits of Dubliners and everything and I thought he just captured Dubliners, people of Dublin so well and kind of the Irish experience. I've I played in Exiles by James Joyce, a, a play which is very rarely done. I did that in the in the Peacock, directed by Vincent Dowling. It was the first drama to be produced by RTE in colour. Other than that, I played Stephen Dedalus in a portrait of the artist as a young man. And I played Dedalus also on stage at the Abbey. When I got the script, I looked up more about James Joyce and tried to figure out as much as I could about him. Fun little factoids and dirty secrets that he had and everything. And just apply that when I'm in there. But the script and that story itself from Bloomsday, the one that we're working on, I didn't know uh, at all. I had no idea about his relationship with his brother. I've read Dubliners, I've read Ulysses, I've read a portrait of the artist as a young man. I can't say I... 
uh, grasped everything out of all of it. But uh, yeah, I really enjoyed it. I think what I was told whenever anyone was advising me to read any of his books is just throw yourself into it and you're not going to grasp it all. You're dealing with a genius. So just whatever nuggets you can take from it, enjoy. I think Stephen Dedalus in Joseph Strick's production of A Portrait of the Artist as a Young Man. I spent a lot of time in preparation for that role. We had a wonderful cast. We had T.P. McKenna, Sir John Gielgud. I, I remember on one of the filming days, he, he played the, the preacher of the Hellfire Sermon, which we filmed in Belvedere College. And on, he, he filmed that over three days. On, on the first day, at lunchtime, uh, Sir John was sitting by himself at a dining table at lunch. And I was thinking, oh, gosh, he's all on his own. There's nobody going to talk to him. But then I didn't dare go near him. And suddenly I was aware of the fact that he was calling me over. So I went and I sat with him. And all I could think of was that, oh, my goodness, I'm sitting at, at a table with Sir John Gielgud. And this thought just kept frirring around in my head. And he told me the most fantastic story. He regaled me for the hour of the lunchtime. And to my great shame and regret, I don't remember a single word he said because I was so in awe of the man. I think Joyce writes wonderfully defined three-dimensional characters first off and it's a joy to read the women in his work because they're complicated and they're also not prudish unless their characters are prudish. They're very you know, messy and they can be neurotic and erotic and it's beautiful. They're very dynamic characters to play, to read. I played a version of The Dead with um, Performance Corporation and Breedy Cash and I played Greta Conroy, which is widely said that that was based on Nora and that was such a beautiful character, especially because of the music as well by Ellen Cranich, but also just because of the text, because of the short story, The Dead, and which I think... Her sadness, her melancholy is written so well, so beautifully, and obviously because he knew it. And of course, in The Dead, Greta Conroy has lost her first love quite young, Michael Fury, and that's based on a true story or, or a true uh, event that happened in Nora's life when she was quite young as well. Yeah, I do. I think like Tennessee Williams, he has a knack for writing women, and I don't think that that's always the case. I thought he was fascinating as well, and he is a genius, but... A narcissist as well, and maybe that comes with being a genius. You need a bit of that narcissism to actually complete whatever it is you're doing. And he was just violent in his need to have it perfect and have it the way that he wanted it, and he wouldn't compromise at all. And there's a lot of strength in that, and it can be admired, but I don't know if he'd do so well nowadays, maybe. Ulysses in Nighttown, I played Lynch in the first production, which was directed by Tomás McConaugh. Frank Grimes played Stephen. Frank then left to go to America. He was doing a play in America, and I took over from Frank. Joe Dowling played Bloom. He was absolutely marvellous. Bernadette McKenna, my present wife, Leslie Lawler, was in it as well. This production was uh, a kind of a, a telescoped view of, or, or, or a, an encapsulated view of the, of, the, of the whole book. It started with the Dignam funeral, and then it mostly took the Nighttown sequence as its base with some other elements the citizen for example brought in and other elements of the of the other book just to, to fill out the story and it was a hugely successful production Tomas was the most inventive director and uh, we we all of us 
in the Abbey at the time, particularly the younger folk that he brought in under his wing. We all absolutely adored him. He was he was a genius. I, I bought myself like an annotated version. So I was like, there's references to like streets or pubs and uh, phrases, Dublin phrases that you're like, oh, this has died. So I, I need help along the way. But then like just reading, you know, the sounds in your own brain. And if you're brave enough to read it out loud, it's it's quite satisfying to play with. I'm from Tipperary, uh, Clonmel in County Tipperary to be specific. No, I'm from Dublin. So for the accent, I actually done a play, Maeve Binchy adaptation in 2019 called Light a Penny Candle, in which the character Ashling O'Connor was from Galway. So I did work on an accent for that and I kind of researched or regurgitated, should I say, that accent for this. Um, but I also, period wise, it was 1905. So they spoke a lot differently then. And it's actually really hard to find any clips of anyone speaking because obviously it's 1905 so you kind of you, you have to use your imagination a little bit and also as I said the film the Fanula Flanagan film was really helpful because she speaks as Nora in it and I thought uh, it, it's good enough for her it's good enough for me <laughs> I got into the business I suppose when I was small uh, that was when the interest started I would have been doing school plays and plays at the weekend uh, with youth theatre and everything like that. I went to boarding school in Glenstall Abbey and there were lovely um, school plays on there every year and I would have done that every year. Um, but primarily I hadn't decided that I wanted to be an actor until the Leaving Cert was approaching and having to get points for other subjects that I was slightly interested in was terrifying. So I kind of uh, chose acting because it felt like, it just felt like the right decision to make, to be honest. It's the one that made me most happy. I went to boarding school because my mummy didn't want me around the house anymore. I, w I went to boarding school um, because I, I think that's just where my mum and dad had always wanted me to go to school. My dad had this great connection with the place. He used to be, he used to be a monk um, before he met my mum and then uh, left all of that behind, stopped being celibate. And then uh, they settled down, but they always had this great connection to Glenstall. And he really wanted uh, his children to go there one day. So I think that's where it started for them. And I love the place. I was very, very, very lucky to go to such a nice school. Um, boarding is interesting, um, but I would recommend it. My connection with the business as an actor started when I was four, I remember. Christmas, four years of age, I was given a, a doodine, an old pipe as a present. I don't know how it actually came into my possession, really, but it was a present of some sort. And I remember my mother actually filled this with tobacco. And I was sitting by the fire at the age of four and sucking on this thing. It wasn't lit, but it did have tobacco in it. And I was sucking on this little doodine. And I imagined to myself that I was a very old man. And that was the very first time that I became aware of the fact that I could project myself into other psyches, into other human beings. Other than that, when I, I left school, I, I worked as an amateur actor. I was working in a chemical company. I, I spent time as, a, as an amateur actor in the Lantern Theatre particularly. I had a wonderful time there. And then my sister told me that she had spotted an ad in the paper for... Ready Warren, looking for uh, for actors. She said, you should apply for that, I, which I did. And uh, to my surprise, I was given an audition and I was accepted. And I was one of 27 actors who at that time formed the Radio Warren Repertory Company. And we had a fantastic time. I remember my very first role 
I started at the age of 12 and I went on to about 24, 25. Now, that's not the kind of thing you can do on stage. Another great experience I had was I played Billy Bunter. Now, Billy Bunter is an enormously fat schoolboy from the, the Greyfriars books. And I, at the time, I'm still quite slim, but then I was like a pull through for a rifle. I was probably only about nine and a half stone. And I played Billy, this fat schoolboy, and a friend of the director absolutely loved the programme. We did a whole series of them. And she asked him, could you come and watch a recording? Because, of course, into the studio. And I was standing at the, the microphone being Billy Bunter. And she was appalled because her image of Billy Bunter was now totally destroyed. I got into acting uh, as a later arrival. I had studied a different course in college. I was studying um, mathematical sciences in DIT. And uh, I joined the drama society there, um, sort of caught the bug and switched lanes, a sharp turn, right? And, uh, and then I uh, went down to the Lear down at Grand Canal Dock there and uh, did my three years there and then went out into the world and been braving it ever since. I got into the business. <laughs> How did I get into the business? When I was very young, I did some classes, some dance classes uh, to kind of make friends, I suppose. And uh, I told my parents I really wanted to be an actor. And I don't really know how I knew that because I was very young. I just, I suppose I knew divine intervention. I don't know. Uh, so they put me in some classes in the gaiety and I was I was sold then, hook, line and sinker. And they were very supportive, uh, thankfully. So I didn't have to go and do like a degree in between school and drama school. They were full steam ahead, you know, go straight into it. If that's what you want to do, um, fail, fail again, fail better. So they gave me the opportunity to try and and um, that I've been doing it ever since. I didn't actually do any formal training. I, I applied for, was accepted into the Abbey School of Acting and I attended one afternoon session, which was given by Bill Foley. Um, it was fascinating, but then the school closed for the summer holidays. And it was during that summer holiday that I applied to Radio Erin and got in here. So I spent uh, two fantastic years working on, in, on radio, playing all sorts of roles that I couldn't possibly have done on stage and working with wonderful actors like uh, Tom Studley and Peg Monaghan and Daphne Carroll, Seamus Ford, uh, Connor Farrington, George Green, all these, these amazing people who taught me an enormous amount and gave me a great deal of their time, as they did to every other young actor who came into the place. They were very, very generous and very, very helpful. Went straight from secondary school into the Lear and I did a foundation course there for a year. And after that, then I went on to do the full bachelor degree in acting and was there for three more years. I did. Uh, I did four years. Uh, I have uh, the other piece of paper for that as well. So don't ask me anything about it now. It's all left my brain. I'm sure at one point uh, a job will come up and I can try and bluff my way through it. The business, our business is very fragmented. I think there are more opportunities, but young actors now, they are much, much better at making their own work, making things happen for themselves. I think almost every actor, young actor I know now is... Uh, a producer, a director, uh, a writer and performer. They, they do everything. I never had that capability. I was never, I was never a writer. Uh, I never had the desire to direct. 
and I have no idea what producers do. <laughs> so <laughs> I'm, I'm stuck with what I have, the limited talent that I have. We were taught in the Gaiety to, to make our own work in times when we, when we weren't going to be working. And obviously some people took to it and some people didn't. Some people are natural writers, some people aren't. I wouldn't say I'm a, I'm a natural writer, but I think I'm a storyteller, which m- most actors are. Uh, so I've been trying to harness that skill and better myself uh, uh, writing for stage and for screen. Uh, during the pandemic, I started writing for screen because there was no stage. So yeah, I started out with a play called The Wickedness of Oz, uh, which was a show in a bag for Fishamble, Irish Theatre Institute and Dublin Fringe in 2016. And that actually went on to become a radio play directed by Goretti Slaven. And it won Best Radio Play at the Zebby Writers Guild Awards the following year, um, which is very exciting. It's kind of, you've got to do as many things as you can. Um, that makes sense to you as well. So I do do writing. I've produced as well. I haven't edited anything yet, but, you know, there's nothing stopping me. If I had to, um, I would I would happily learn. Um, I think I'm lucky my brother is a sound recordist and a sound engineer, so I already have all the equipment at home for free and everything like that, and a good teacher too. I have a theatre company called Anshonish, and we have a play over in the Brighton Fringe called Wild. I did a short film with Engine Shorts. It's a new scheme, and we are waiting now to see if that gets into the FLA or any of those festivals. Um, so yeah, I've been tipping away at my own work and grinding and grafting away. Yeah, that it was more out of, out of that sort of feeling as a like a like bile building up in my stomach, going, "You'd better do this, or you won't be happy." So uh, yeah, I did like a a play that I wrote in college, and uh, I got a good sort of reception off that. And then um, I ended up doing like a, like an audition course at the Lear, but not intending to audition for the Lear. I think I was the only one who was doing that, and. Uh, I think the person running the course kind of went, what are you, what are you doing here? That's, I suddenly realised why I was there unconsciously and then uh, I applied. I approach a part in a very simple way. I get the script, I read the script and I read it and I read I just keep on reading it and information keeps entering into my psyche in a kind of osmotic way. You, you get a certain amount of information the first time you read but then other little tiny tidbits start going in. You become aware of what other characters say about you in the script you become very much aware of how you approach and talk to other characters because what they say about me and what I say about them might not necessarily be the truth you can say oh oh, Joe Strick is a wonderful man but secretly in your heart of hearts you might be thinking I don't really like him at all now that's not true I did actually like Joe a great deal but it's just an example of how you know, the, the inner self can be being very truthful. The outer self can appear to be truthful, but can be lying. And nobody's to know. When I get a script, typically I would go through the play straight away, have a read, and then try and get any clues from the playwright about who my character is and what the relationship is to his, the other people he's meeting along the way. Because this is a real-life character, you're trying to scramble on whatever sources you can have like the secondary sources be it the internet or whatever books to see if you can find any anything else that will help that you can bring into the play as it's radio which is a first experience for myself relying heavily on directors and producers to guide me along the ways to figure out how to play to that medium as, a, as opposed to theatre say we're coming out of a very difficult time the arts 
you know, it is exciting to be coming out of the pandemic and to see the light. It's difficult, you know, to rebuild. I think Catherine Martin um, has done a really brilliant job with rebuilding and the arts, uh, helping to rebuild the arts. Yeah, we're, we're, we're slowly but surely getting back on our feet. I think theatre is one of the only industries that will never die. It can't. It's live performance. It can never be replaced even if it does have to go away for a while when things like the pandemic come along, it will always come back in some capacity. It was difficult, but it's also a really, really good learning curve. I mean, waiting is kind of part of the job and part of the game and sitting on your hands and not only that, but having to kind of do self-gardening, keep yourself in kind of okay condition, even if there's nothing going on and keep tipping away at it. And I think the pandemic was the ultimate test that it was the world on pause it was kind of okay how do you feel with the job not there and I think it was really helpful in the end like a career in stagnation right at the beginning isn't easy but I learned an awful lot from it as well I have been extraordinarily lucky in that uh, I have had a great career I have worked for almost the entirety of my life I've had a few fallow periods not all that many I have a wonderful wife, I've raised three wonderful children and theatre, film, television have enabled me to give each of them an education. They are now successful in their own right and that's, that's quite an achievement for someone working in the arts because it is, it is, it is such a difficult environment to, to work in. And I know that there are many actors who are better than I am who have not had the same success so there is a huge amount of luck involved. Being in the right place, there at the right, at the right time. There's a lot of that happens in our business. So I count myself more than fortunate. I really do enjoy doing them all. Like when I left drama school, I thought theatre was the be all and end all. I had no time for screen. I had no time for anything else. I just wanted to be on the stage. I wanted to go to see plays and just immerse myself in it. But as I get older, I appreciate the mediums more. I just, I guess, drama school is centred around training you for stage. So that was just all I knew. Um, but I went then to Bow Street after the Gaiety and, and I you know, really there learned an appreciation for screen work. And I've worked recently with screen director Imogen Murphy and producer Fiona Kinsella and their love, their passion for it has been infectious. So, um, and then obviously on radio, the magic of radio, I think also can't be replaced. The magic of creating sounds, the foley and radio, the voices, how you, it's like reading a book because what I imagine when I hear a radio play is very different to what you see in your head. And I think that's beautiful because then the possibilities are endless. Radio is my, my first love because the pictures are always better on radio. We were, we were driving on one occasion to Waterford to visit my parents after they, my dad had retired. They went down there. And Leslie used to read to the children in the car. So she was reading uh, one of the Narnia books, I think it was, and the three children were in the back of the car. Dara, our second son, he was probably about four at the time. And Leslie, about... After about an hour, she said, I'm going to take a rest now. My, my, my throat is sore. And, and Dara said, oh, no, 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 don't stop. Don't stop. The pictures are fading. I've exclusively worked in theatre, uh, not by choice, but uh, I've loved every bit of it. Uh, this is my first radio job, so I've been loving this as well. So, yeah, whatever comes up, you just throw yourself at and try and learn a bit more and whatever experience you've had previously or inexperience you've had that you can... Um, just play with it and hopefully, hopefully do a good job. 
another thought that struck me coming in here today is in this studio it's it's wonderful to be back back in here i was mulling over recently i did a, a uh, an interview for a, a national newspaper and preparing for it i was trying to think what kind of questions are, are they going to ask and what information might be interesting for them so i did a quick trawl through my history in radio and i reckon that today on in this studio i'll be recording what is probably my 1250th radio play there are so many people that have inspired me i love screen actors obviously the best of the best you have meryl streep and maggie smith and Judy Dench. I would love to sit down and have a conversation with Julie Walters because I read an article in The Guardian uh, that she wrote about being a working class actor and I relate to that. And I find the way that they entered the business very interesting. So her, Stephen Graham, you know, Jodie Comer, I find those those actors very interesting when they're talking on interviews and stuff. Also, closer to home, I really have such admiration for our best stage actors, you know, Dervla Crotty, Owen Rowe, Ashling O'Sullivan, Cathy Belton, Stephen Brennan, all the Brennans. <laughs> yeah, uh, really have a lot of admiration for them and their time on stage. In terms of inspiration, as a, as a very young actor, somebody that I admired absolutely enormously was Eamon Keane. And I had the great good fortune to work with him here in radio when I joined uh, the Radio Air and Rep. Eamon was a sublime actor. He had everything. He had charisma, he had charm, he had truth, which is very difficult to portray. And he, he was an inspiration. I remember in 1966, he was spectacular in a play called When Do You Die, Friend? And Eamon was just unbelievably brilliant in it. Marvellous man. The waves go in and out. You have to get used to that sort of cycle. It takes a while. Uh, sometimes the tide's out longer than you expect. <laughs> but uh, you just have to, you rely on other people. I would say to actors, uh, when you're starting out, don't be afraid to get a different job. Just get out there, do bar work, do a bit of restaurant work, whatever it is that is there for you. Because that'll all eventually feed into your own job in some other ways through the different characters in life you'll meet. But yeah, try and not stay in bed all day is what I'd say. If, if I was not an actor, I would probably be a carpenter. I love uh, DIY, everything about it. I'm fascinated by how things work. Some of my earliest memories are taking old radios apart, or alarm clocks, having Meccano sets, building things, saying, how does that go in there? Why, why does that... And all of that kind of curiosity about how things are, how things work. And I still have that. At the end of the day, you want to make something that you tell people, that's great. I'd watch that or I'd listen to that. I would spend my money to be entertained that way. You know, There's no point doing a half measure then and not investing in it fully. I'm a particular fan of Yeats. And I was very fortunate in that in 1989, I was asked to do a one-man show on Yeats which was written by Edward Callan, an American university professor, well, from Mayo, but he spent almost his entire life in America. And he had written this one-man piece about Yeats. In fact, when I say he had written it, he said himself that there was 
scarcely a word in it that didn't come directly from Yeats. It was the poetry, the prose, the letters, the biographies, all the autobiographies, all of that stuff was encapsulated into this wonderful piece, which I did for many years. I had the great, great good fortune too that Yeats's son, Michael, came to see it regularly because his wife supplied the music. Gronje Yeats, wonderful, wonderful woman. She played the harp. She did live accompaniment to some of the pieces that I was doing. So I got to know the Yeats family, you know, Gronje and Michael and their extended family over the period of time that I did the show, which was for many years. And the extraordinary thing was that Michael actually came to see that show possibly between 40 and 60 times, I recall. And I wondered why. And then it, it dawned on me that he was only 16 when his father died. And I don't think he actually got to know him all that well. He spent a lot of time away at boarding school. And his father was, to him, a very elderly man. So he didn't get a chance to know his father particularly well. And I, I felt that he got to know his dad through the show. I had one extraordinary experience in their house at a party on one occasion. I was sitting on a sofa and had a drink in my hand and Michael came over and I started to rise to let him sit on the sofa and he, he, he waved me back into, into, the, into the chair. He said, no, 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 you stay there. And then he sat on the floor at my feet and I had the most extraordinary sensation that I was his father. The other extraordinary experience in relation to that particular production, and I was doing it once in, in, in the Peacock. We had a, a week's run. And I was also at the same time working in London. I was doing a BBC television play. So I was rising at six o'clock in the morning, going to the airport, getting to the BBC, working until three o'clock, getting to the airport, flying home, getting back to the theatre at around about six or half past six. And going to sleep for maybe an hour in, in my car outside the theatre before going in to do the show. By the Friday of that week, I was pretty much exhausted. So that particular night, the show went up at quarter past eight, I think it was. I was sitting in the dressing room and I, I just had no energy. I thought, I'm not going to be able to do this. I, I, can't, I can't do this show tonight. And on my dressing room table, there was a, a first edition of new poems by W.B. Yeats, which Michael Yeats had given me. And it was signed by W.B. Yeats. And I put my hand on it and I said, Oh, Willie, if you're around, I need help now. And those words were no sooner out of my mouth than there was a, a knocking at the door. It was just like this. And I said, come in. Nobody entered. The corridor outside that door, at the far end of it where, where people enter, there is a door which at that time used to squeak loudly. I hadn't heard anybody coming along the corridor. I stuck my head out. No sign of anybody. There was nobody. Gronje I knew was on stage because I could hear her tuning her harps. There was no sign of the stage manager. So how to explain these three knocks on the door. It could have been kind of spooky or scary, but the, the, the strange feeling I had was that if W.B. Yeats had actually walked into the room at that moment, I would have said to him, 
Thank God you're here, Willie. You can do the show. And in that edition of In the Wings, you heard Bosco Hogan, Colin Campbell, Kate Gilmore and Aina Grogan discussing Nick Midgley's play Bloomsday, recorded this year as part of the Ulysses Centenary. And you can listen back to In the Wings, Bloomsday, Oscar Night and more than 100 plays at rte.ie slash drama on one. Drama on one. Sundays at 8pm. rte.ie forward slash drama on one. Drama on one.